the perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage. From National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between, CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Barton Simmons. That's Tom Fernelli. I'm Chip Patterson. We're here on a Monday afternoon. We've got, and I think this should be a very fun conversation, uh, the underrated storylines for 2020 coming up in just a little bit. Uh, first, we've got to get to some of the headlines coming from the weekend. Maybe a little bit troubling, uh, at least in terms of our optimism, hope, or um, you know, our, our views of what college football might look like, though, maybe maybe it provides some clarity. Uh, but before we get to any of that, gentlemen, Barton, Tom, how are we doing? Uh, we're good. I'm I'm I am a supine right now. I'm laid up, little little back little back issue right now. The wife's got me moving rugs in the quarantine. Moved one too many rugs. Got a little back issue all of a sudden. So. Um, I'm doing this. I'm doing this uh, laid out. I'm, Beat up. I'm sorry. This this is not the first horizontal podcast that you've done before, though. No, no <laughs> this is <a> recurring. <laughs> Nor will it be the last. No, exactly. Just hope. It, yeah, I just hope that. Uh, just hope by Thursday's pod, I'm back. I'm back seated. I I am doing something for the first time during the recording of this podcast. Uh, wedding a NASCAR race. <laughs> You've got uh who do you have? Do you have Ryan Newman? I've got I've got a few bets. I've got Ryan Newman at uh at what let's see here. At forty to one. I've got Eric Almarola at twenty to one. I've got Brad Keselowski at eight to one. And then I've got a Ford winning the race at at plus one fifteen, so so that's NASCAR betting. You just straight up or just like taking odds and just picking up, picking just a flat out winner. Listen, baby, now that I can bet legally and just withdraw and deposit anytime I want, we're gonna get degenerate. <laughs> gonna Plus, get it's a Monday afternoon and it's something to bet on. <laughs> Wait, gonna get degenerate. <laughs> I mean, I've never really been a NASCAR better before. Sure. I've, I've bet like some big races once in a while, but you know, I'm, I, I'm not betting the Geico 500 very often, put it that way. Let me know when the process develops spreadsheets for NASCAR and hit me with that Google doc link. Well, here the, here's the process for this. I read that like a Ford has won 11 of the last 12 races at Talladega and Daytona. <laughs> so when I saw plus 115 odds on just a Ford winning the race, I was like, okay, well that's where I'm really going. And then I just did some light reading for you know from experts and do a little money line sprinkles on those other three drivers the the drive drive for five podcast here i don't know we'll come up with a better name we'll workshop that we did have some listeners who loved the uh the par three podcast 
on the Cover 3 podcast uh, at the beginning of the last show. And it was interesting because we recorded on Thursday and I said, you know, it's like, well, you know, PJ Tour hasn't had had anybody uh, test positive for COVID-19. Well, that 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 all of a sudden sailed. Friday, uh, Nick Watney withdrew positive test there. And, uh, and that provides a little bit of a transition into some of the biggest stories of the weekend. A few weeks ago, Tom Fernelli was on it. Um, last weekend I was on it this weekend, Ben Kirchival, friend of the podcast got, was on it. It is just a Friday afternoon and Saturday and Sunday, uh, and even into Monday morning, just press release after press release after press release of college football programs and athletic departments announcing positive COVID-19 tests. Um, we have at LSU, uh, reports of 30 players in quarantine. Now, not all of those players have tested positive, but through contact tracing or positive tests, they are all in quarantine. Clemson announced on Friday 28 student-athletes and two staff members, uh, the Athletic reporting that it 23 of those 28 are football players uh, and two staff members. Uh, Kansas State University onboarded the team with all negative tests. Now they have shut down all voluntary team activities after 14 positive tests. Kansas State themselves has come out and described it as some people that showed up late uh, might have been might have you know brought the virus in, but also they have circled two off-campus parties over the weekend that have contributed to these 14 positive tests. Iowa threw on nine more positives in its last round of testing, now up to 12 positives among 374 negatives. The conversation around these announcements gets big and scary. It is easy to be drawn uh, to the conclusion that these results indicate what should or should not be going on within college football right now. I, I was on CBS Sports HQ talking about Clemson's uh, positive tests on Friday night. And, you know, my main point there was if you're going to spend all this time putting together all these protocols to be able to uh, monitor and provide assistance and quarantine and isolate, if you're, if you're going to build in all these systems, now's the time to put them into action. And now we get to see, you know, through college football, a little bit of a lens of what a return to sports might look like across the landscape. It also is concerning about uh, universities opening back up. Period. How do you how do you keep college kids from going to parties? I mean, guys, there's some big, heavy questions floating around. We don't have to tackle any of them. We can tackle some of them, but I wanted to at least for listeners and fans that are seeing some of these headlines and and probably having the same sort of concerns about the upcoming season and about the players themselves. How, you know, where are you focusing, uh, if at all, as you start to continue to get this news? Well, I, I, I'm like Dabo Sweeney. I'm an optimist. All right. This is I'm all going to end real soon. T I G E R S. <laughs> I just look. So here's the here's my thing that I want to ask. You two are smart guys. No one here is an epidemiologist, but uh, we're, we can we can we can reason. Why is the sky falling all of a sudden because these guys have gotten on campus and they've tested positive? Isn't isn't that exactly what we knew would happen? Guys would get on campus, they would test positive, we work out these kinks, so to speak, we figure out how easy or difficult it's going to be to quarantine. Like, and, and is it 
is it not a reasonable assumption to make? And it might not be, but in my in my feeble brain, it's a reasonable assumption for me to make that like it's not that big of a deal for this healthy young population of student athletes to get this in June and then they have the antibodies they you know, the we, we they are more equipped to deal with it if it comes back uh, the the there is potentially herd immunity though I'm a little bit unclear whether we're even we're, we're even even counting on herd immunity being something that matters like I know that these are questions that perhaps like we're not qualified to answer with authority, but I I do kind of like I see some some of the some some narrative emerging of like oh all of a sudden not so good of a feeling about this season coming up like feeling a little bit less optimistic and it's like well why well is, so is we knew this was gonna for, happen yeah like for me it's not that players are testing positive back on campus because like you said we all knew that was gonna happen. For me, the concerning aspect is what is happening off campus in that we're seeing a lot of states suddenly have major spikes, including like I wrote today, I had to write a post on uh, the Big 12 athletic directors are talking about, you know, pushing the Big 12 championship back a week. So that way it gives them like an extra week of buffer room in case games have to be postponed this fall. They would then have that December 5th weekend available to make them up. So I was just looking at the numbers in Texas because Texas is where that game would be played. And Texas is also one of those states where numbers have risen. And just to give you an idea, from March 1st to May 31st, Texas had, uh, let's see, 40, yeah, okay, Here's, they had 47, or in June alone, I'm sorry, I got the, I can't remember the numbers, in front of it, but in June alone, there have been 64,000 Oh, I'm sorry. I'm. <laughs> it's a lot of numbers out there. Yeah, they in June that no at the beginning of June the number of cases in Texas confirmed was sixty four thousand two hundred eighty seven. In June they have added June alone those sixty four thousand two hundred eighty seven were from March first to May thirty first. So that's three months, about ninety some odd days. In twenty one days in June there have been forty seven thousand three hundred fourteen new cases. And that's not just from increased testing. The positivity rate, the rate that people who get the tests are testing positive is also going up, not just the raw numbers. That's the concern because if you look at the United States' overall numbers compared to Europe, and all of Europe is somewhat akin as far as population numbers to the United States, there's a reason they're playing sports in Europe right now and we're not. Their numbers have gone down like people like I've seen, you know, people have, we've I've confirmed or not confirmed, but I've been worried about like the second wave. I've mentioned it here where my bigger concern isn't starting the season on time as much as whether they'd be able to finish the season, because with flu pandemics throughout history, there's typically been a second wave. That doesn't mean there will be a second wave of this one, because this flu virus isn't exactly like every other flu virus. It's a little different. That's part of the problem. But we're not even out of the first wave yet. If the numbers are once again starting to go back up, this isn't the second wave. This is still the first wave. So if it's June and we're still in the first wave and we didn't do the flatten the curve that we were supposed to be doing, or at least that was the goal when they first announced all this stuff, if we're not there yet, that's a concern. Now but that the doesn't curve mean the curve is flattened. 
Like, not everywhere, is, though. Not everywhere, Barton. It's going up in, what, 21 states. No, but th- th- this is my point. So, like, when – okay, so when things open back up, there's there's inevitably going to be a spike in cases. Like, yeah, because people are – like, the the country is starting to open back up, so there's going to be more cases. My, my whole th- – like, look, Chip, you opened a can of worms here because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. I just know that, like, when – when we we've been hearing about flatten the curve, flatten the curve, flatten the curve, because hospitalizations and capacity and hospital beds and all these sort of things were at risk, and and here we are, and like positive cases to me isn't even like that, like that is less important than what are hospitalizations, what are what from are Gavin Newsom, from Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, ICU cases are up sixteen percent over the last fourteen days. I mean, I, th- th- is California? California is op- one of the states going up, which is and it's o- but it's but it's opening up from quarantine, right? So like it's, I'm not like of course like hospitalizations are going to be up if the state opens up. But Illinois just is entered today. It announced that it's going to be entering phase four, which is pretty much as close to back to normal as they're going to get before going to normal. Our numbers are going down. And we've been open for a few weeks. I, I feel like there is more testing going on around college football programs than there is in a lot of communities. I think that the, I think that that is a good thing. Uh, I think that that's a good thing because every little bit of information is better than people walking around carrying the virus without knowing it. I think that when we imagined uh, what college football would look like in the fall, there was an assumption that the presence of the virus, whether like curve was, you know, the presence of the virus would be less than what it is right now. I think the way we talked about this in March, April, and May was very much with the idea that um, there would be, there would be much less. And like, to your point, Tom, about Europe, there are examples of industrialized countries in the world that have uh, dramatically turned things over and sent everything going in the other direction. And so when you look at um, any new information compared to that, knowing that there are other places in the world in a global pandemic that appear to be ahead of schedule and things seem behind schedule, I think it's very easy to be uh, very concerned and have that sort of drive your understanding of what's going on. To your point about you know college football programs and college football players, I not knowing anything about the virus is probably the biggest thing that's scary to me because even if you're asymptomatic, even if you get over it in like four days, are you still like, is it the chicken pox? Are we treating a disease that's killed over a hundred thousand people? Like, Oh, they got COVID go over to his apartment, hang out for the night. Y'all, y'all go play, uh, spin the bottle and, uh, and, and let's, let's go ahead and let's get everybody like the antibodies. I just think that that's the, like the that that's sort of the give and take there where parents of players are saying they're comfortable with the risks. Players are saying they're comfortable with the risks. Third parties are driving a lot of the alarmist conversation, ones who are not parents and ones who are not players. But that is what makes it a little bit difficult. And that is why I think that, you know, I was expecting to see case numbers and positive tests be coming out and become news, but there's also a lot of schools that aren't reporting positive tests at all. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of schools that are keeping that information locked up. And 
I just, I, I've come to a, a somewhat, I will admit, a somewhat calloused position where I believe that athletic directors are alphas with egos and big salaries, and they are problem solvers. They are not ones who have been known to fold. They are not ones who are going to make the toughest decision of all, which would be to say that we're not going to play. And as long as these athletic directors and a few university presidents, I wouldn't say all university presidents, but as long as the administrators of college sports and college football are trying to be problem solvers, then they are going to continue to put in protocols. They're going to continue to go through these operations. And I, for one, am willing to give them that opportunity. You know, I am not going to try to jump ahead of them because I'm not having conversations with public health experts. The numbers of tests are alarming, but they do not change my opinion on whether the college football season will start on time. It just brings into an even clearer view for me that somebody is going to miss a game because they went to a party and somebody at that party tested positive for COVID-19. And now all of a sudden, like, I'm really sorry, you're not going to play against Texas tech, you know, or, and I don't know who it's going to be, but if it's a significant player, goodness gracious, you know, like Kansas state's coaches were, they stopped short of saying a player would be punished, but Kansas state's Chris Kleiman and the Kansas state athletic director very, like very, very clearly have singled like parties where there was outbreaks and there's going to be similar situations like that at college campuses all across the country. And those are just going to be really difficult conversations, but these numbers are just getting me ready for having those conversations. Yeah. And I too think that there's still enough time between now and when the season is scheduled to begin, that the season is very likely to begin on time. My main concern is just what happens as the season goes along. But I also think that kind of like what you're saying there, Chip, is what we're going to see is we're going to see positive tests among players treated like sprained ankles. Yeah. Or like, just okay, be, well, you're out two weeks. Or it was your roommate, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. you could have done everything that you were supposed to do. You could have followed all the protocols. You could have maintained your six feet distance, washing your hands. Uh, you aren't going to any of the bars. You aren't going to any parties, but your roommate does. And you and your roommate eat dinner together three feet apart from each other every single night. And now your roommate has cost you the opportunity to play or participate in team activities for 10 days. I would say to fans, just get ready for that. I'm just laughing thinking about look this is this is all very reasonable ask of um, Jamar Chase you know Jamar you got a chance to play for a national championship you're our starting wide receiver you're the Bolitnikoff award favorite you're going to be a first round draft pick next year you know what give up parties for the fall just don't go to any parties handle your, your business Practice, work out, be with the team, handle your schoolwork, play video games. And let's get through this season and see how many games we can win, and and you'll be better for it. Jamar Chase nods his head. Sounds good. I'm in. Yeah, uh, let's do this, coach. But, I mean, Jamar Chase isn't an island here. Jamar Chase is uh, uh, beating the hell out of some practice squad cornerback every day at practice and that dude is just you know he, he's just there on scholarship trying to get in and, and lsu they're all trying to go to the nfl so let's call it toledo like or 
or or my squad Buffalo. Like there's a couple guys there that are just they just got a scholarship and they're 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 the four string player. They're they don't they're not gonna sniff the field and you're telling him he's gotta get his ass kicked in practice all week. He can't play on Saturdays. He's gotta sit there and watch the game on Saturdays and cheer for the for the starters. And oh yeah, by the way, like you can't even go to any parties, bro. Like you can't even get out on Saturday night and get your beak wet. Like that's <laughs> and if you do, you might infect the whole team. Like the whole thing is just it's 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 comical. Like it's 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 crazy. Football aside, I'm just wondering what the party scene is gonna be like on campus this In fall. college. Period. Yeah, because yeah, it's it's, it's it not just suck. It's not just the LSU <laughs> players. Uh over one hundred COVID-19 positive cases have been linked to Tigerland, that stretch of bars in Baton Rouge. <laughs> like super spreaders. Goodness gracious. So I don't, I don't know. That's uh that I, I am in a position where I've, I have uh, somewhat accepted the fact that contact tracing, quarantining and isolation are going to become a very real part of the college football experience. Like these teams might even get it under control, but man, when the kids come back, we'll see it again. <sighs> Just wait, wait, wait till, uh, wait, wait till what's, what's the most consequential week one game, Alabama, uh, USC. Yeah, maybe. Mm. Here, here's my official prediction. Are you ready? I'm ready. No matter what happens with, the virus or tests or data people will just do what they feel is best for them in the end. Yeah. I was talking, uh, <laughs> whatever was, serves their purpose is what they're, what is, what is going to happen. Yeah. I was talking to my brother-in-law and he's in pharma. And so, uh, a bunch of family members have like gone to him for advice and it was like, well, they're saying that it's not as much on surfaces anymore. You know, they're saying it's more, it's more in person. And then they're saying this, what do you think? And uh, my man was like, I think people are reading whatever reports make them feel better. They're going to do what they're going to do. The human condition. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. Uh, coming up on the other side, I, I have not included uh, coronavirus as an underrated storyline. I would guess it probably counts as an overrated storyline, but we've got some storylines for you uh, for the 2020 season. Coming up next. The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features ensure that you can take on any adventure. What kind of features? Well, how about the available H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud? Or the standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together? How about available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone? We're always trying to think about those great spring and summer getaways, but with a car like the Hyundai Santa Fe, anywhere can be your next adventure. To learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe, go to HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, 
celebrity interviews, or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right. This we're, we're, this is kind of like ranking the news, I guess. I don't know. We haven't, we haven't really... Uh, I've, I haven't gotten in the lab. We haven't fully fleshed this out to the point where, where it's going to have a jingle, but potential, I would say there's some jingle potential right here. Uh, we have storylines for you underrated. Rank. What? I like, I like ranking the news. Is that, is that someone else's, uh, uh, segment is title it? somewhere else? Tom? I don't know. It might be. I mean, there's a billion podcasts out there, so I'm guessing at least one or two oh, have ranking the news. Somewhere. Um, I'm gonna say it's not on page one of Google. Ranking the news. We'll have a jingle coming up soon. Stay tuned to the Cover Three podcast. Uh, <laughs> we've we've all picked out some underrated storylines for 2020 in college football. We have ranked them. Uh, you know, this doesn't have to be necessarily off the radar. That's not underrated, but it's something that we don't think is getting enough attention or something that we personally feel uh, is very interesting, intriguing, something that we would want to represent. So uh, who wants see first pick in ranking the news? Barton, you, you've titled the segment, so, so you get it. Uh, what is your first, you know, what is your number one underrated storyline for 2020? Well, technically, you titled the segment, but I just agreed with it. Uh, but I'll I will take it. I'm I, I really like. I thought I thought long and hard trying to figure out what my favorite storylines of this this year are. Underrated, to be clear. Um, that's that's the idea here, uh, not the obvious ones. Um, I'm anxious to hear what you guys have. My number one storyline. My number one most interesting storyline to me. This is very personal. Is Stanford's continued descent into the spread? That, I am curious <laughs> yeah. if Stanford's just con- continued softening of that program resumes in 2020. Because this is Stanford is. Let me remind everybody that this is like the home of Toby Gerhardt and Christian McCaffrey and nine offensive linemen on the field at one time and power football and physicality on the other line, Harrison Phillips and Solomon Thomas and all these guys that are just ass kickers. And over the last couple of years, we have seen the toughness, blue-collar, workmanlike physicality just dissipates into this basketball on grass that everybody else in the country is doing. And, you know, we've talked about it before. Mike Bloomgren left. He's now the head coach at Rice, their offensive line coach and offensive coordinator. Uh, Shannon Turley, their former strength and conditioning coach, was 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 – removed unceremoniously uh based on some some sort of complaint uh from a from a player uh 
uh, and caught up in that. Their strengths have been KJ Costello throwing the ball around, and uh, last year it was Davis Mills throwing the ball around, and their strengths have been passing and their wide receivers and their DBs. And this is another year. I think the returning rushers, lead returning rushers, Austin Jones, who was a freshman last year that had a handful of yards, but he's not a power guy, and even if he is their best running back coming back this year. I know they have Foster Sorrell and Walker Little allegedly going to be healthy, and that'll help maybe the run game. But it's still Davis Mills, still not a lot coming back at running back, and it's still the wide receiver. So if they keep on throwing it 40 times a game, then, hey, who are you anymore, Stanford? I don't recognize you anymore. So that's that's a storyline I'm watching. Do you think that the switch came as a cuz an interesting pivot point to me in in I love that you said descent because you're you're implying true or false that this is all bad, right? It's bad for st- I mean I it's I don't like what I see. Right, cuz the Stanford zig then zag, why are you just trying to play the same ball that everybody else in the Pac-12 is doing like how did Mike Leach lure you into these 60 to 55 type games like that? An interesting pivot point to me is the case of Bryce love because Bryce love was a 2000 yard back in 2017, but he wasn't all the way a power back. He was, you know, he, he got it at about eight yards per carry. He got it. He was like, and you know, hit a couple explosive runs he fell a little bit short. Remember, had some injury issues in 2018. And that was, uh, I guess, 2018 would be like full, like JJ Arcega White sides really starts to emerge. KJ Costello gets out there and starts to become a primary part of the passing game. I, you know, there was another one that you, you, you know, you were mentioning the long line, like Stefan Taylor was another power back right there. I wonder if it's the combination of offensive line and running back that has kind of led the switch because when I think about, you know, even with Bloomgren gone and uh, and shout out to our Rice Owls listeners in the house, uh, I think that at his core, David Shaw, I don't pin to one specific style of offense. No, th- and that's his argument. And that's his, and he's been like, you know what? We're just playing, like, we're playing to our strengths. Like, we're not... Our, our best players are receivers, so we're going to throw the ball around. It's like, okay, that's that's fine. But I think Stanford, you know, I think Stanford is going to be the best when their best players are not their wide receivers. I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe that's a. Maybe I'm being the one being stubborn. But I had a Stanford storyline too. It's kind of similar to yours. All right, let's hear it. Mine was just: Are they going to be able to bounce back? And I, it goes in line with what you're talking about because, and so I won't count this as one of my headlines, but it was just because I did, you know, SRS is the rating system that is used on college football reference. It's just, it's kind of like a lot of other metrics in that it rates a team and then it's a rating that is, you know, you can use from year to year. It bound, you know, it, it adjusts for every single season. And from 2011 to 2015, Stanford's average SRS rating, and again, the higher the number, the better, was 16.71 with none lower than 12.42 in any of those seasons. Since 2016, its average SRS has been 7.18, so less than half of what it had been for the five seasons prior. And then if you look at recruiting, 
their average recruiting ranking from 2011 to 2017 was 21.14, but that number was dragged down because they ranked 52nd in 2013. None of their other classes were lower than 24th during that time. Since 2018, their last three classes, they've averaged a 27th overall, and their, their 2021 classes, we record this, is currently at 91st, although there's a long time between now and that signing day. So, yeah, it's... <laughs> I don't know. If you look at Stanford, if the way things are going, and then you look at Oregon kind of on the come up, you look at Washington possibly being able to get its, you know, act back together after a couple down years there. I just wonder, and, you know, with Cal moving up, Oregon State kind of improving, I just wonder how much room there is left for Stanford to improve to get back to what it had been. Mm. All right, Tom, what's your what's your number one? All right, well, since Barton pretty much stole one of mine, I'm going to steal one that might have been his. Oh, well, can I? All right, go ahead. I don't know. I don't, really... I don't think you can defend it. <laughs> no, I was curious. I was going to see if I could guess it, but go ahead. I am interested, and in, this part of this stems from your other podcast mistress, something he's been keeping track of. I want to see how national recruiting works this year. In, in the era of a pandemic, because as Bud Elliott at 24-7 Sports has pointed out a lot, we have seen a lot more commitments in this, 20, in, the, in this current class than we're used to seeing at this time of year in previous years. Now, maybe some of that is just part of a trend with the early signing period leading to players signing earlier, but I don't think that could be solely due to that. I think it's the fact that, you know, since you can't really go to campus right now. I think that people are trying to get their spots while their spots are available. So there's a good chance we're going to see a ton of decommitments as the season goes on. So I think that's going to be interesting to follow. And then another thing I would like to see if, if you guys are willing to chart this for me there, Barton, I want to see if there's a greater correlation of players staying home this year than there would be in previous years, simply because of what's going on with the pandemic, maybe you're less inclined to leave and go far away from your family and, you know, where your, your comfortable situation. So it'll be interesting to see how well teams are able to recruit. Cause we've seen so many teams now you, they recruit, everybody recruits Florida. A lot of people recruit Texas. A lot of people in the West recruit California. It'll be interesting to see if all the schools that are usually rely on those areas from outside their home borders to bring in talent if they're going to be able to keep doing that and have that same kind of success, or if a lot of those kids are going to want to stay home and play in Florida or Texas or California. Well, I can partially answer your question uh, in terms of the, the local guys, North Carolina, number four class in the country. Uh, I think all but one of their commits is from the state of North Carolina. It's a ridiculous year in the state. USC, typically a team that closes strong, but starts slow is at fifth in the country. Um, uh, Iowa, they're they have offered more in-state players than Kirk Ferentz has ever offered in his career. Are twelfth in the country. Maryland, sixteenth in the country based on primarily local guys. Rutgers, nineteenth in the country based on primarily New Jersey guys. So uh, the answer is yes. If uh, it's 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 giving a fighting chance to some non-traditional recruiting powers. Uh, that have some some talented players locally, and then there's Illinois, yeah. which hasn't had a home player from Illinois in either of its last two classes. I was like, then there's Illinois that's taking up residence in Florida. Mm-hmm. Lovey, getting it done. All right, Stanford's descent into the spread. Barton's number one uh, underrated storyline. 
the the recruiting calendar when recru- or at least not recruiting calendar when recruits commit and where they commit are recruits staying home uh, is Tom's number one my number one underrated storyline for the 2020 season is one that I've I've kind of been digging into recently and with every new piece of information I love it more it is the hire of David Ballou and Dr Matt Ray PhD MD DDS. <laughs> I noticed uh, some Alabama beat writers retweeting Alabama players once the voluntary workout started. Like, oh man, uh, Coach Baloo is on one now. Like, lots of lots of positive comments. Uh, I wouldn't say that they were specifically that the workouts were hard or whether they must be different. But there has been some outspoken response from Alabama players on social media. So I started to dig in on these guys. And, and we spent a little bit of time talking about David D- Ballou and Dr. Matt Ray. I've even wondered aloud whether or not these guys were going to be like, you know, uh, new edge or new age, because that's the way that Nick Saban talked about them in press conferences and in interviews. And I just, uh, I just love every little bit of this. This is like analytics and numbers and everything just taken like way off the charts. I mean, if you look at Dr. Matt Ray PhD's Twitter um, background, his Twitter header, it is as if you Google Galaxy Brain Sports Performance. It's like a heart in the background of a big brain with all the veins going in around it. He goes on these long Twitter threads. I won't read them all, but... uh, Let's see. How much do refinements and sprint mechanics actually improve speed? Three question marks. Data currently processing. Stay tuned, but I'm betting I'll be trimming some followers after this one. Verdict. Refinements and sprint mechanics among college football players explains about 3% of any improvement in speed, 31% by increased power, 61% from improvement in coordination with muscle activation. Muscle activation? 5% improved body composition, making progress, and this is my favorite part, LinkedIn article in the works. I mean, the new age aspect of this. Here's another Dr. Matt Ray banger. Team speed is what wins football games. <laughs> Those kind of improvements are a combination of intense work ethic with our players and the fact that David Ballou and I are willing to invest tons of time into individualizing this as best as we can for our player. Dr. Matt Ray, PhD, has published nearly 100 studies himself in performance enhancement. He is into speed training and injury prevention and performance optimization. I mean... My brain just melts at the idea that Nick Saban has gone from the drill sergeant Scott Cochran to these galaxy brain scientists and just handed him the whole Alabama roster. If if all of it works, it potentially changes and helps level up one of the big one of the best college football programs of the modern era. But man, I love every bit that I get from these guys. Yeah, it's uh I mean, I, I agree. Um, I'm I'm fascinated by by those guys as well. I I would love to kind of hear more from them and 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 learn what their process is because strength and conditioning is is it's like so many other things in life in that like it's it's the definition for success is so unclear and the 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 different things that you can point to to be successful 
varies so much. Your circumstances vary so much. I remember when I was in, in uh, <laughs> I remember when I was in college, um, the first strength coach that we had <clears throat> for a couple years, he used to have this sheet up on the board of like our, our testing results, like our strength and speed testing results. And, um, the, and like it would compare us to Nebraska's like most recent strength and speed test results. And like, we were allegedly like basically as fast and as strong as Nebraska. And it's like, and it's like we we would all joke like oh I guess we could just go beat, beat Nebraska, Nebraska. <laughs> like this is like I like this is your clock and this is this is, these are your like six rep maxes that we're doing that like you know it's just all like bubbled up to like create this illusion that you're getting stronger when it's reality is like what are you actually accomplishing and what like what 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 is the what is the actual result of this work we put in like our bench press like like we've got, like we got some rockheads that can like bench press more than someone at Nebraska like what what like what are we really accomplishing here and i love that the uh that these new guys at, at Alabama are are being so uh i don't know just intentional about the work and what they're trying to accomplish with it and not just you know headbutting each other in a weight room and like throwing chalk up in the air and knocking out power clean. Like it's, it, it, it is refreshing and it's enlightening to kind of see some of the, the, the processes and theories behind it. They are literally trying to grow the man. I mean, he's like, I just imagine the end of the individualized workouts are being, it, it sounds in interviews with both David blue and Dr. Matt Ray, PhD, MD, DDS, that they like, they really sit down for hours after every workout session. And I just imagine them with an old dot matrix printer, just printing out the results. Like <laughs> <laughs> flipping through it. Oh, we need to increase strength, lower body strength by 4% in Jalen Waddle. Okay. 4% Jalen Waddle. You got it, boss. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I love it. It's, it is one of my favorite storylines. Again, it is one that I've only really dug into this month as uh, starting with players on social media having reactions to these new workouts. And when Scott Cochran had been there for so long, especially the players who had gotten used to those kind of workouts, that kind of attitude, it might be that anything different was going to get a reaction. I'm willing to... They, I'm willing to say that and know that just because they have a reaction doesn't mean that this is all going to be better, but it does certainly seem to be different. And the more that I've learned about these two individuals who do not want to refer to themselves as a strength and conditioning coach, but as a number one, David Ballou, director of athletic performance and Dr. Matt Ray, PhD, MD, DDS, uh, athletic performance coach, comma, head of sports science. I, I just want to, I want to see what happens. Barton, back to you. What if, uh, what if we look like this is like all this, we're, we're, we're like praising, singing their praises. And what if we look up in two years and like Alabama's just running around out there, just like everyone's just rail thin, like <laughs> getting their ass kicked all over the place. <laughs> and, and Matt Ray and uh, his boy are just like slinking into the corner. Corner, like 
you know, sorry, sorry, coach. I, I would imagine that the injury prevention part of this had to be what attracted Nick Saban, yeah. especially given the way that things have gone at Alabama really the last three to four years. Yeah. But, but it, it goes back to though, to this whole, like, I, I, I agree. Like I am with you in, in agreement that it's a fascinating storyline it's, I think it's a smart hire. I'm inclined to believe these guys are the real deal. And yet, I remember when Derek Mason came to Vanderbilt from Stanford. It, like, the, the, you know, he was putting together this staff. And, you know, at the time, like, well, he's got this coordinator, Randy Shannon, who's the, you know, this uh, former head coach came from the NFL. Like, what a great hire that is. And, oh, yeah, he brought in. The, the maybe the best hire of the staff, uh, it, not Randy Shannon. Um, I'm sorry, Carl Durrell. And maybe the best hire of the staff is um, is, and I can't remember what the strength coach's name was, but they brought him over from from Stanford, and he was like Shannon Turley's right hand man. And so it's like, oh, so so Vanderbilt is going to be Stanford, like Stanford, and they're and everyone's going to be strong and powerful and and. And and bad as hell, and they're going to whoop everybody up because they're just going to be so big and you know like look what Stanford's done, and like that guy was fired two years later and and was just doing apparently like all they were doing was just like resistance workouts and like no one was getting stronger and it was just all about flexibility and it just whatever like his version of it just didn't work and so my point is like we ultimately. Like there is like we can look at co- offensive coordinators and defensive coordinators and there's a resume attached to it and there's numbers attached to it and there's success and failures attached to it. It's so difficult to to parse out how to measure success and strength and conditioning that like while we think this is a great hire and, and a cutting edge hire, we really aren't gonna know for three years, probably. Like it could be advocare supplements. Or neutral, or I mean, maybe I'll bleep it out. I don't want any of those people coming for me. But yeah, like it could just be another, like, oh, like give up on all your meals, just drink these, and you'll be stronger than ever. <laughs> right. We'll see. Right. Uh, all right, Barton, back to you. Number two. Uh, okay, so I, I I'm all over the place. I got a lot of lot to choose from. So I, I'm just gonna go a little general here, and I'm just gonna go back to. Um, Lincoln, and I'm just going to headline to the, the news something to the, the the something to the effect of Nebraska, like can they turn it around with the new XL offensive coordinator, Matt Lubick? <laughs> like another the, another new age hire. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Corporate Matt coming from his his uh. Is selling mortgages or whatever he was doing in, in Colorado. Because this is the thing that's like Nebraska, if they don't, like if this is just another whatever six and six year, um, doesn't it really kind of start to shake what you think about where this is going with Scott Frost? Like, because the only reason I bring it up because it's, it's sort of a broad big picture storyline. It's not necessarily like some hidden line, but like we haven't really talked about Nebraska yet this offseason. No one's talking about him. Like Scott Frost wasn't in my top ten of my coach rankings this year. Like he was, he was muddled in there in like the anonymous thirties, like everybody else. And 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 the season's approaching, and JD Spielman just transferred, which is no surprise. But there's not a lot of receivers on the roster. They're going to have to count on a lot of newcomers. 
to, to make some plays. Wandale Robinson is is hopefully going to be a guy that can can shoulder a, a big load. Is, is Adrian Martinez actually the guy we thought he was as a freshman, or is he more like the injured version of him as a sophomore? Like I just think that this this program has suddenly become just a it went from the the, the most hype we've seen that program since like Tom Osborne when, when Scott Frost arrived to okay, but this is the year in year two. And then now all of a sudden it's sort of like everyone's just kind of looking around at each other being like, yeah, maybe seven and five. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully. And I, I just kind of, I'm, I'm very fascinated with the trajectory of it. And he just, you know, Scott Frost just let go of uh, Troy Walters, who was his, OC at UCF, and like I can't imagine that was an easy one to 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 let go of. And he hires Matt Lubick, and I just think it's going to be a really interesting year towards to and sort of a, letting us know what the trajectory of things are in uh, in Lincoln. See, I, I think that if if they go six and six, and yeah, you're kind of like, hmm, you know. But I I also think that it's going to depend on what that six and six looks like. You know what I mean? Like if they're just beating up on bad teams and getting their butt kicked by anybody with a pulse, then it's like, all right, now that there's reason to be concerned. But I, I, I look at Nebraska as a situation where I think maybe because of the hype surrounding Frost at the time and what he had done at UCF, that we kind of looked at that and overlooked the situation Nebraska was in from the Mike Riley's tenure there because going from Bo Pelini in that spread to Mike Riley, who was trying to be, you know, more of a pro style and then recruiting towards that and then bringing back Scott Frost, who was running an offense similar to the one you'd been running a few years before, but inheriting a roster filled with guys who weren't built to do that. I think that maybe a lot of us all kind of overlooked that this wasn't just like a thing where you know, it's you can UCF was clearly a rebuild because that team was 0 12 before he got there and they went 12 0. But it's a lot easier to do that in a group of five conference if you bring in a good offense and get a good quarterback and you can, you know, out scheme your opponents and you have just as much talent as they do. In the Big Ten, that's not as easy to do. And I know that the Big Ten West is not the most powerful division in the Big Ten. You know, Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, Michigan State, those guys are all over in the East. But there isn't much of a gap between everybody in that division. There's far more parity. So I think that rebuilding there might actually be more difficult in a way. So I think that we're, we've kind of underestimated the amount of work that Scott Frost had to do when he got to Lincoln. And I do think that if if they don't get to at least six and six this year, I would be pretty worried if they don't go bowling but if they don't do much better than six and six as long as they aren't getting embarrassed like i said by teams with a pulse i would consider it a step forward now it's, i want to consider it good enough for what nebraska wants to be but i also think that you know this is just a situation that was going to take more time than we thought a lot of that going around too by the way the the well all right so it's 14 transfers out from nebraska this offseason Mm-hmm. I think something around that. I don't know if that's the exact number, but I know it's been double digits. That is uh, concerning for sure. Maybe you know, maybe that's also a result of you know just like pruning that uh, roster pruning that is 
overdue that has maybe uh, contributed to why Nebraska has not been able to take that next step and and live up to those expectations, especially the ones that were headed into year two for Scott Frost. I I, I will say that my I've got some confidence that Matt Lubick and because Lubick and Frost were together at Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. So they've got a little bit of a. I mean, listen, I, I, I would love to know who in the private sector was paying Matt Lubick for that time when he was he was tasked with finding uh, market inefficiencies in the real estate market, and instead he was just diagramming up his pitch to his old buddy Scott Frost just in case things went south. But I, I think that there's I've got a little bit of confidence that shaking that up might be an opportunity for Nebraska's offense to be able to find something. I feel more confident in Nebraska's offense, maybe taking some step forward. Adrian Martinez maybe taking some steps forward than I do because I just don't have a good feel for that team as a whole. And I I wonder if the Bo Pelini was nine wins every year and mm-hmm. he got ousted because that wasn't enough. But I wonder if that kind of nine wins every year also built in uh, also built in new expectations where Scott Frost may if he can get to eight wins, you know, if he can get to six and six, seven and five, if he can get to eight wins, I think he is gonna have a longer leash if he wins nine games every year than Bo Pelini did. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean he was because he'd be coming, I mean, I guess uh Bo Pelini was post Bill Callahan, right? So he was he was still had to sort of climb. Um it's not like he had he was sort of taking over from Osborne. But yeah, I mean, if you're, you're elevating the program to that, um, and given how long it's been since they've consistently been at that, then I, yeah, he's got, and I, and I want to be clear too. Like, I don't even, I'm not even saying like, I suddenly have doubts about Nebraska. I'm just interested. We haven't talked, you're right. We haven't talked about it. And I think that we haven't talked about it. Like the reason why I think it's an underrated storyline is because everybody feels burned by last season. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is again, which sort of sort of makes it interesting. It's like no one, no one wants to touch it. Like they don't want to predict that they're going to be good. They don't want to predict that they're going to suck. They're just sort of like over it. Like they're just <laughs> over predicting Nebraska. Let's just see what happens. And so I, I think quietly like that, that's a, that's just a, going to be a fascinating team to, to watch because their, their record at the end of the season is going to be uh, a pretty strong like referendum on where things are. Also, if you're a Nebraska fan listening to this, do the three of us a favor. Go through the players who have transferred out this year and tell us how many are Riley recruits and how many were Frost recruits. Because I think that will, I think that's a key thing to consider too when it comes to the, you know, instead of just the number. Did y'all see the mailbag question? Who said that we should call Oregon State the JV Nebraska team because of all the Nebraska players that have transferred out and ended up at Oregon State? Like Mike Riley's not even there, but it's just like the ghost of Mike Riley is guiding them there. Doesn't Mike Riley have some sort of role at Oregon State? Oh, like as a I've, consultant. I've lost track of where Mike Riley is because wasn't he a, a, a like a you? What's the what was the league? Not the XFL. But the he was one. at the he was at the uh, XFL with the Seattle Dragons. So he was the XFL. He was he, a consultant. For, and in 2018, yeah. he was a consultant at Oregon State before he left to take over the San Antonio Commanders, and then he left to take the Seattle Dragons. So I would assume 
that he's still a consultant at Oregon State if he wants to be. Yeah, he's he's still got his place in Corvallis. Mm-hmm. I'd feel good about Riding that. Riding his bike around campus like he always did. All right, Tom, what's your number two? Uh, let's see here. Where do I want to go for number two? You know, we just talked about Scott Frost. Let's go to Scott Frost's old stomping grounds. It's UCF's run ending. Mm. Oh, man, you're going to just climb back on that UCF hate train. I'm just, it's not a hate train. It's that UCF had been poised. It, it was in a position where, you know, after it won, went 12-0, and 0, it, it won the, what was it, the Sugar Bowl or the Peach Bowl that it beat Auburn in? Peach Bowl. Their Peach Bowl. And, you know, it, it claimed that national title. And it looked like it was in a position where, oh, my God, this is a team that might be the first, you know, group of five team to crack the playoff. Or at the very least, it looked like it was going to be the dominant, you know, group of five program. And that was in in 2017. And that SRS metric I mentioned earlier with Stanford in that metric, UCF was actually the 10th best team in the country in 2017. And then in 2018, even though it had a loss, it was better. It finished ninth in that metric. But last year, it dropped to 21st. And I just wonder what I'm keeping an eye on is the further we get away from Scott Frost's time in Orlando, will UCF under Josh Heupel be able to maintain it? I don't have a feeling either way. I think last year was somewhat of a concerning direction or concerning shift, but they also had a freshman quarterback and, you know, you're going to see, you know, growing pains with that a lot of the time. But more concerning is that you look around the American and Memphis, they've lost Mike Norvell, but that's a program that's very strong and has gone up. And now we have to remember divisions are gone. So they've got to deal with Memphis directly because now it's the top two teams are going into the conference championship. They're going to have to deal with Houston directly, who, which is, I think is a program that's going to be heading, you know, back towards up. I felt like last year was a tank. Then you've got Cincinnati. So, I just wonder now, it's like it, at a couple of years ago, it seemed like UCF was far and away the best team in that conference. Oh, and USF might be coming back too. That's I don't want to ignore your boys, Chip. Thank but you. Now I'm not even sure they're the best team in their own conference anymore, let alone the best team in the group of five. So for me in 2020, I want to see UCF, if it's going to get back to that kind of kicking everybody's butt, you know, swagger that it had a few years ago, or if it's going to keep going the wrong direction. So that is something that I will be paying close attention to in 2020. I'll tell you, go ahead. Well, I just, I think Memphis is going to be really good, but I think just the, the rise of the conference, like there's some, some good teams that challenge UCF, but I'm less um, skeptical of UCF being able to like continue to be really good. Like they've, they're, they're, they still have a ton of really good skill guys. They still have some really good DBs. They still have, you know, they still have a really elite group of just talent, uh, particularly for the American. Um, but you know, I'm, um, We'll see. I I I think there's. I still think they're going to be pretty good. My prediction is that if your definition of run is you know holding that role of being one of the premier group of five programs in college football, I would agree that that might be tenuous. But I also think that what we're dealing with with UCF is a very high floor situation because uh, 
I, in my head, as you were talking about us, well, UCF can still be a really, really good team and near the top of its conference. I just don't know if, like, so in 2007, this was back when they were still in Conference USA, 10-win season, 7-1 in conference play. 2010, 11-win season, 7-1 in conference play, top 25 finish. 2012, 10-win season, 7-1 in conference play. 2013, Bortles! 12 and 1 uh, overall, 8 and 0 in conference play, top 15 finish, Fiesta Bowl win, 9 win season in 2014 in the American, 7 and 1 in conference play, uh, no top 25 finish. Like there's, there is a, there is an, I have an expectation that even if UCF's run is over, the fall won't be very far, that the fall from the run being over is double-digit win season, conference championship contention every two to three years. It's just that, as you mentioned, the trajectory of the rest of that league suggests that they're not going to be far and away. They're not going to be uh, – Clemson to the ACC is not going to be what UCF has in the AAC. Yeah. I can dig it. All right, my number two, uh, my number two story, underrated storylines for 2020. Man, I absolutely cannot wait to be bouncing around on you know, because we're. I mean, listen, it's 2020. It's gonna be all about polls, right? It's all gonna be about polling numbers. It's all gonna be about popularity. I want to see how things go with Justin Fuentes' polling numbers with Virginia Tech. Because, man, oh, man, this could be an incredibly entertaining ride. Now, Virginia Tech, with all of its starters back, is a contender for the ACC Coastal Division title and the ACC Championship. Uh, Virginia Tech, as Tom Fernelli has mentioned on this very podcast and on CBSSports.com, is a great kind of dark horse team. There's a lot to like there. But I look at the way this schedule unfolds, and the highs and the lows, like given what we've seen from the Hokies in recent years, there there is not anything that suggests that this is going to be a 12-0 season or an 11-1 season. There's going to be a couple spots where they're probably going to drop a game or two. But who are those games going to be to and when are they going to come? Because just last season, Virginia Tech got beat like 45-10 to 10 by Duke at home. <laughs> Had them playing exit Sandman as the fans were walking out in the third quarter. Like Virginia Tech at the same time worked its way all the way back, got a you know huge win uh, against North Carolina in I think multiple overtimes during the regular season in Blacksburg. Won those conference games to be able to set up a game against Virginia that could have been for a bid back to the ACC championship game. Obviously, they they lose that. Then they blow a lead to Kentucky. Can't stop Lynn Bowden. I understand that happens to a lot of people. But really uncomfortable and unsettling finish to the season for Virginia Tech. Highs and lows all over the place. Justin Fuente, as we mentioned before on the podcast, goes to interview with Baylor. Virginia Tech fans are like, uh, okay. Well, tell us how it goes. Like not not a lot of uh, weeping at that news. And then his return was like, all right, cool. Guess we're all together. It was a very, very strange situation. And when you look at the schedule, we've got Penn State in Blacksburg week two. If Justin Fuente wins that. Ooh, boy. Can, can do no wrong. We're flying high. But then you've got at UNC on October 10th, right before a bye week. Now, that game is probably going to be a crucial game for determining the ACC Coastal. 
We lose that game. It's going to be a little bit uncomfortable, but there's a lot of games left. They come off a bye week, play Boston College at home on a Thursday night. There's nothing more Virginia Tech than Boston College and Virginia Tech in Blacksburg on a Thursday night. It's like 2007 Big East vibes. It'll be a a good uh, energy if fans are in the stands, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, Then it gets very, very dangerous, very, very hairy because Virginia Tech plays at Louisville on Halloween night then a short turnaround to at Pitt. So you're going to go play Louisville on Halloween, and then you're going to go play at Pitt on a Friday night on a short turnaround. Like, there's got to be a loss there. What's Virginia Tech's record when they hit that point? How do they uh, respond there? And then the final two home games are Miami and Virginia. Like, the ups and downs that we could see from Virginia Tech this year are going to be wild because based on the personnel, they are incredibly capable of being successful and competing for championships, but there are so many spots on the schedule that look like potential slip-up spots, and I feel like Justin Fuente's polling numbers with the Virginia Tech fans will hang on how this season finishes, and so I think that'll be a, it'll be a fun storyline to track. We know where I am. You, you mentioned it. But I, here's here, just not a storyline track, but here's a little little fun thing that I think because I've already we, we don't have win totals yet, but I've gone through the schedules and got all my win projections ready for when we do. And I won't, you know, re- divulge any of the results, but I will say that I think the Coastal is better than the Atlantic based on their records this year. I is not, that, exclu- is not that including a, Clemson, obviously. But right, I think is, is that a controversial take? Is that an is that a non traditional take? I don't know because I feel like the the coastal gets slided a lot because it's always you know like it's the whole random number generator in that you know seven different years, seven different champions. The team that goes to the championship game just then gets slaughtered by Clemson. But my projections right now have, let's see. four teams in the division winning at least eight games compared to only two in the Atlantic, one of those being Clemson. So, I think North Carolina has a chance to be really good. I think Virginia has a chance to continue to be a quality team. I think Pitt could be, like, sneaky, really good. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Miami, I mean, their defense should be sick. Like, just as can Rhett Lashley and Derek King produce an offense if they can, and that's, like, a really good team. Then you have Virginia Tech – and so then you're still with, you know, Georgia Tech and the fight and chase prices at Duke. Um, that's, I think that's significantly better than what the 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 uh, Atlantic has with Syracuse. No faith in BC. Not a lot of faith in Wake. Should be a, maybe a <clears throat> regression year. NC State. Not a lot of faith in Louisville. Um, I think they could be pretty good, and then Florida State. So, I would I would probably agree with your take. There might be a little more upside in the Atlantic. Like Florida State could be really good. I think Louisville could be really good. But I mean, so could Miami. So could Pitt. I got. I'm with you. Pitt has uh, a truly elite defensive line and a really good back seven, and a figure it the f out quarterback in Kenny Pickett. <laughs> I mean. Don't yeah, don't don't look past the Panthers at all. All right, back to Barton for your third. Number three. Ranking the news. <clears throat> ranking the news. All right. Um I've I'm 
I don't know where to go here. I got a lot. I just I got a lot. Of, I got a lot jotted down here. How about? How about we go? I just there. There's more interesting headlines, but in terms of my interest level, just my intrigue. Just Kentucky. Just throwing just Kentucky out there. Also Kentucky. overlooked, very much overlooked and uh, and not really dissected heading yeah, into 2020. Maybe that's, maybe that's where I'm going here. Like no one's – I'm not hearing a lot of Nebraska talk, not hearing a lot of Kentucky talk. Like Kentucky is about to enter a year where like the, everyone's talking about Georgia and Florida, understandably. Tennessee is like oh, – like they're the hot team. Everyone's talking about Tennessee – South Carolina, they've got their OC finally. Maybe they have the run this year. And and here's Kentucky. Like, yet again, the team, everyone is counting out. No one is – no one has circled them on their schedule. No one has picked them as the dark horse. No one ha- – they don't have the quarterback that's the Heisman Trophy contender. They All they have is just a sick offensive line a few different running backs that can get you yards. Uh, all of a sudden, they've got some depth at quarterback and some options at quarterback. Their defense is going to be great, and they got a head coach that's going to be able to continue to say, everybody's counting us out, boys. And I just think, like, when you look at, like, let me pull up Kentucky's schedule. Uh, Kentucky's schedule, 2020. Uh, when you look at their schedule, all right, Everyone talks about, and I shouldn't say everyone. Like we have talked about, like how Florida has such a has such a smooth path. Uh, you know, there's Auburn's on there, and man, Auburn. This is this the year that you know Gus Malzahn has a one of those hot seat seasons because you know look at all these teams from the West they got to beat, and man, Tennessee can they get by Georgia or Florida this year finally? And like you know Georgia, like like when you break down everyone's schedule all Kentucky is is just oh that's a scrappy team that could get you like no one's got that game as like one of the real challenges and I think that's a mistake like I think that Kentucky is this could be I think another year where Kentucky really is one of the better teams in the east like I don't know I don't think they're gonna win the east I don't they're not gonna beat Georgia but I think that Georgia and Florida better you know they better be ready to play Georgia's got to go to Lexington at the end of the year. Florida's got to get get them. They're getting them week two. I just uh, I am very intrigued by Kentucky because this feels like a very Kentucky team. I will uh, I will always have a on the tip of my tongue positive words to say about thirty year college coaching veteran Eddie Grand for what that offense did last year just quarterback goes down quarterback goes down well you know what we're just chucking this thing out the window and he's always had good running backs at kentucky like whether it was like benny snell boom williams like they he has been around college football for a long long time and he has worked uh with a lot of the games like more well-known uh coaches and sometimes I think that when you're on successful staffs, you do kind of just blend into the background behind the head coach. But man, that was that was some real work of ingenuity. Where uh, what Kentucky did offensively last season, I th- I 
I am now taking an approach with Kentucky that when we do our win totals, I'm going to count up their 50-50 games, and I'm going to give them 50% of those just because. Well, what do you think, Tom? I like Kentucky. I like. I mean, it was a few years ago, Chip. Yeah, remember? That's a, that that was. The, the, did you hear the intonation, Tom's <laughs> voice there? You are. You're in the crowd, man. You're in the crowd of just. Oh, that's a cute old. That's a cute Kentucky squad over there. They're, I picked Kentucky to win the East a few years ago, sir. <laughs> you did? Yes. You picked them to win the East? Yeah. It was after. What year was that, Chip? It was, was it during Josh the season, Allen? Like, when the SEC East was a complete and total. Oh. It was. I think it was, was Kirby's first year at Georgia when Georgia finished eight and five. Florida was, I still think, under Muschamp. And I was just was like, a, it wasn't the year when when Georgia went to Lexington with the East on the line, or and I went there and covered it for HQ. Was it? That was only two years ago. No, it was it was the year before anybody really expected Kentucky to be good. Well, that was a. I don't remember what I don't remember the circumstances of that year, but that that strikes me as probably being a pretty ballsy pick. I got very. I I became a little bit of a celebrity in the state after that. I remember I was doing a, was doing Kentucky sports radio, and I got bumped from the show by Mitch McConnell, so that Matt Jones could like debate him on air or something. Yeah, yeah. It's because Mitch McConnell finally agreed to call into the show and talk to Matt Jones. So like, I got bumped a day for that. And then I remember too. A week later, I was doing a hit for a CBS News online chip, which was you know the, the prequel really to what CBS we do with HQ now. And I got bumped by Barack Obama, so it was like a really oh. <laughs> it was like it was a hell of a two weeks for your boy. But <laughs> I just no, I I think Kentucky. I, I agree with you. I think that there's been a, everybody's assuming Georgia because obviously Florida is a team that is on the rise, and everybody's looking at Tennessee as being the team that's going to take that step forward. And because of that. It's kind of ignoring what Kentucky's been able to do the last few years, and everybody's just kind of pushing them to the side and saying, okay, Kentucky's going to go back to being Kentucky. But I think that, yeah, this is a team that could still be competing for second place in the division if things go well. And we saw what they were able to do last year, even though you know they were down to like their 19th string quarterback by having to put Lynn Bout in there. And they were still able to win games and still able to get to a bowl game, and they were still effective while doing it. So... I think that, yeah, Kentucky could be a really fun, under-the-radar kind of team to watch, even though they should no longer be under the radar at this point. All right, Tom, what's your number three underrated 2020 storyline? All right, well, I mean, I can't do this an underrated storyline without bringing up the service academies. <laughs> yeah, the Whatever purpose, it is, it is underrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you have that. When I, when I imagined this as, as something that we could not only have fun with today, but continue into the future, your individual touch is absolutely encouraged on these ranking the news activities. I think that looking at the, the, the situation that all three of our service academies are facing heading in, to uh to the 2020 season i think air force is probably going to win the commander in chief's trophy this year i I think if you look at the situation i think army took you know army last year took a big step forward and i don't know how much confidence i have that they're going to get back to being the 10 11 win team that they had been for a couple years there I think Navy had a great season last year, but Malcolm Perry is gone, and I don't know if there's another Malcolm Perry waiting in the wings, and I think that still being in the American where we I discussed with UCF, where you've got to deal with UCF, you've got to deal with USF, Memphis, Cincinnati. You know, the, 
I think that this could be a rough year for Navy. And then I look at Air Force, and Air Force won over 10 games last year in the Mountain West, and Air Force is the only one of those three that's got its quarterback coming back this season. And I think that going into the year, Air Force is going to get back. Did you guys know that from 1982 to, 20, to, to 2002, Air Force won the CIC trophy 17 times? I, Army, I, won, it, I, Army I, won it four. Navy didn't win it a single time. What was the uh, year? For 21 years, from 1982 to 2002, Air Force won it 17 times. They dominated that thing. But since 2003, Air Force has only won it four times. They did it last in 2016, but it's been it's been reversed. Navy didn't win it a single time from 82 to 2002. But since 2003, Navy's won it 11 times, including last year. Army won it twice. I think Air Force is going to win it again. I think they're going to get their, their fifth in since 2003 and i don't know if they're gonna i'm I'm not sitting here saying they're about to set up a dynasty because i still think but i think there's a lot of parity between the service academies that's coming our way i think all three of them are kind of improving i think it's kind of fun to watch are you worried at all about the buy-in from air force after troy calhoun flirted with colorado state or i'm sorry the colorado job no Uh, i mean troy calhoun has been linked to so many jobs over the years and I also think that you know it's it's a service academy. You're not you're there. You're not there for the coach. So what do you think? <laughs> uh, I I I also I did know that because I love uh, I like pulling up the commander in chief's trophy uh, big old graphic on Wikipedia because you can see that they, blue. yeah you can see that they've kind of like passed the passed the torch around on who's been the dominant team and there has been more parity with navy winning in it in 19 army gets it in 17 and 18 air force in 16 as you mentioned navy in 15 it has been for the last from 2010 to 2020 everybody's bringing their a game air force wins the commander-in-chief trophy and uh, separates itself from its competitors that straight from tom fernelli as his number three underrated 2020 storyline all right my my number three underrated 2020 storyline is uh is that BYU is going to be the chaos team that we are all going to love and should be paying attention to. We had a conversation uh, in Slack on the CBS Sports College football side. Every Friday, we have a a story called Staff Picks, and Ben Kerchival organizes the activity, puts together all of our responses. And this week, tease, it's going to be chaos team. The idea of the chaos team, as I interpret it, is that they they're going to beat someone, you know, they, they're going to have a, a chance or they will convert on taking down somebody from, you know, they're not expected to, but when you look at them as a whole, you know, it, it's not going to be a team that's going to be competing for the college football playoff. Well, BYU uh, is in a fascinating spot because while they were just seven and six last year, I would argue that that was like a nine win team. They beat Tennessee they beat USC and they beat Boise State last season. Now they did get crushed by Washington and they really dropped the ball at the end of the year against San Diego State and against Hawaii in the bowl game. They lost to Toledo by seven. They lost to USF by four. There were so many different games and for the most part, you know, offense would stall, defense would let them down. It was the similar story time and time again uh, throughout BYU season. And I think that Zach Wilson never really healthy throughout his sophomore season last year, even though he'll have Baylor Romney battling him for that starting job. I think the defense, if it can take a step forward, this is going to be 
one of the most fun chaos teams that we can have. So BYU is a chaos team because BYU plays Utah in week one, plays Michigan State in week two, plays Arizona State in week three, Minnesota in week four, Utah State in week five, then back to it with Missouri in week six and Houston in week seven. You've got Boise State coming up a couple weeks later and Stanford at the end of the year. So Stanford, Boise State, I'll throw Houston in here, Missouri, Minnesota, Arizona State, Utah, Michigan State. Of those eight high-profile games, I think that BYU, where it's at as a program under Kalani Sataki and in this season, is in a position where we should expect them to win four or five of those games. And that means for any one of those teams, whoever they are, Utah, Michigan State, Arizona State, Minnesota, Missouri, Houston, or Boise State or Stanford, that's a disappointing loss. That is not a loss that they their fans expected coming into the season. You BYU, as an independent, has at times floated below the surface, but I... I just kind of think the Cougs are a whole lot of fun right now. You know, you tra- I mentioned the USC and Boise wins, two ranked wins last year. They beat Wisconsin and Camp Randall. This is a team that has proven it is not afraid of absolutely anyone. And uh, I feel like we aren't we aren't spending a lot of time paying attention to the work that Kalani Sataki has done in Provo. Okay. To be fair, though, the only real chaos that they could cause by my calculations, is if they beat maybe Minnesota, maybe Arizona State. I don't expect Michigan State, Utah, Stanford, Missouri, Houston to be playing for like meaningful national games. Boise State, like I guess. You could bump them from the group of five. You could bump them from the New Year's Six. So that's why I don't even really include them. But like that, that, is uh that is a, to me a less um daunting schedule than i've even seen from them i feel like like last year felt like it was because they had utah when utah was better they had um did they have they had usc last year usc maybe that's what i'm thinking of like um tennessee as well like i know, I know tennessee probably is in the mold of a you know a stanford or something in this this list as well but I um they had Washington last year. There you go. BYU yeah. actually in my schedule projections has the second most difficult schedule in the country this year. They only have one game against an opponent that ranks outside the top seventy-five in my in my over uh, my all-time rankings. And that's North Alabama. And that's North Alabama. And it's well, just it's like they don't have an elite team that they're playing, really. But outside of that, it's just. Every single week, it's a respectable opponent, which is more than you know, ninety nine percent of every other team in the FBS does. There's always a couple cupcakes. There's only one cupcake for BYU this year, and I, I think the chaos isn't. Yeah, it's not national title chaos, but when they beat Tennessee last year, it wasn't national title chaos, but it did almost lead to Jeremy Pruitt getting fired in some people's minds. You know what I mean? Like there was That's, that kind of that scuttlebutt. Is, that is fair. Yeah. Yeah. So they have that kind of chaos potential where they like. I think that's what Chip was saying. If the, there's some teams that if they beat, it's going to leave some fan bases of a team that got beaten kind of questioning the way things are going with their program. Eli, uh, I get that. Yeah, yeah, Eli Drinkwitz is going to feel it on the message board if he loses yeah. to BYU. We and, made the wrong hire. And then, and look, Missouri could very well lose to BYU. Yes, a lot of teams could lose to BYU. BYU's good. 
and no one's talking about it. That's why it's an underrated storyline. All right, to review, number one, the Barton Simmons, number one, Stanford's descent into the spread. Uh, and Nebraska's XL offensive coordinator, Matt Lubick, can the Cornhuskers get it turned around? And Kentucky, comma, that's the tweet. Uh, Tom Fernelli <laughs> ranking the news. Number one, when recruits are committing and recruits staying home. Number two, is UCF's run ending? Number three, Air Force separating itself from its commander-in-chief competitors claiming the trophy. Chip's top three underrated storylines for 2020 is uh, the hire and the impact of David Ballou and Dr. Matt Ray, PhD, MD, DDS. Virginia Tech fans polling numbers of Justin Fuente. I guess his approval rating. Justin Fuente's approval rating. And number three, BYU causing headaches for other teams in college football. Uh, That was fun. I like that. We should run it back maybe during the season, maybe in a little bit, get a jingle for it. What do we think? Preseason camp storylines. Yeah. There's a lot of of breaking news we can do. Breaking the news. Breaking the news. We'll figure it out. Uh, My thanks to you all. Barton Simmons. Follow him on Twitter at Barton Simmons. You can follow him on Twitter at Tom Fernelli. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. We will be tackling some mailbag questions later in the week. So if you want to get a question into the mailbag, go to the Cover 3 podcast, the five-star review, put your question in the review, and we'll add it to the big old bag of mail. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road, any road, the steeper the better. Because my all new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.